0: Over the past few days, Israel's army claims to have hit a further 200
1: Hamas targets in overnight bombing. You cannot turn on your phone or go on TV without seeing news about Hamas, Israel.
0: Israel is most certainly not an apartheid state. Arab citizens of Israel have the same rights as Jewish citizens.
1: Who owned this land before? What happened pre-1948? Who started what and who's really at fault? Is this a huge middle finger to the United States and Israel?
0: Hamas's call for a day of rage appears to be living up to its name. With tensions escalating in the war
1: between Israel and Hamas, surely no one will be cynical enough to exploit this situation in order to make a profit. People who support either sides completely remove their humanity in order to do so, which I don't think is necessary.
0: If you didn't think a world war was possible before all bets are off, get ready.
1: Welcome to Ideas Have Consequences and the Israel-Hamas War podcast and Q&A. When I was a little boy of five living in Augusta, Georgia, I distinctly remember coming home from kindergarten and my mother, who never had the TV on during the day and certainly never allowed us to have it on during the day, was riveted to the television. On the screen was the shadowy figure of a man with a woman's pantyhose pulled down over his head and his face. I might have thought it comical were it not for her somber mood and the funereal tones of the normally cheery Jim McKay who narrated, I knew not what. It was 1972, it was Munich, it was the Olympics. A Palestinian terrorist group called Black September had taken 11 members of the Israeli uh, Olympic team hostage. The standoff ended in what Black September, Palestinians, and the Arab world would regard as a blaze of glory in which five of the eight terrorists were killed and all 11 of the Israeli hostages were murdered. The remaining three terrorists would be apprehended, only to be later exchanged for hostages taken in a Lufthansa hijacking. Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir authorized what became known as Operation Wrath of God, in which Mossad would hunt down the surviving terrorists and others who had helped plan the operation. Now, this is dramatized in the Steven Spielberg film Munich and the superb documentary uh, narrated by Michael Douglas' Oscar winning documentary, One Day in September. The terrorists saw the uh, terrorist action, the, the taking of these hostages, as a primary weapon, a means to garner world attention on the plight of Palestinians. In a press conference following their exchange with the Lufthansa crew, one of the terrorists was asked if, he, if, if they had managed to achieve their goals. I mean, wasn't the whole thing a complete failure? But he said no. In fact, quite cheerily, he said no, that it had been a, a success because, as he put it, the whole world was talking about Palestine and the Palestinians. That, he said, was the goal. Ideas, as we say on this podcast, have consequences, and there is a central idea here that you must understand if you were to make sense of the situation now brewing in the Middle East. The idea is actively ignored by the media. Universities are gaslighting students so that they will ignore it. The entertainment industry is gaslighting you so that you'll ignore it too. And finally, Western governments distract you with the shiny objects so that you will ignore the obvious. Well, what is the obvious here? What is the thing that no one is talking about? It's Islam, it's Islam. Yesterday, the Telegraph, US tweeted this, and it's a quotation from an article written by, of all people, Jordan Peterson, in which he says this, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity are vital barriers to the spread of toxic narratives seizing uh, both West and East, writes Peterson. Now, I like Jordan Peterson, and I'm very glad... That he's on our side. But I wish he would, I wish he would finish the journey that he has begun. I wish he would eventually find his way to the foot of the cross and to the person of Jesus Christ, because if he did, it not only would just transform his life personally and give him a hope that he currently lacks, but it would root his worldview in the eternal. As it is, he's often all sail, no anchor. And He's lacking a theology of evil and really understanding what is driving Islam. I mean, the idea that Islam is any kind of bulwark uh, serving as a defense for Western ideals is complete nonsense, and it's either extraordinarily naive of Peterson, or it's a concession that he made, and this is very likely a concession that he made to get published. By the Telegraph, because there's no way the uh, having dealt with with um, uh, these publications, I can tell you that these days there's virtually no way that the Telegraph would have published his article had he called Islam what I am calling it on this podcast and what I have called it in USA Today, on CNN, on CNN International, and on Al Jazeera in debate. Islam is anti-Western in every way that matters. It is anti-democratic, it is anti-Semitic, it is anti-intellectual, and it is anti-woman. It is misogynistic. Did you know, did you know that according to Islamic law, to Sharia, a woman must have four witnesses to any rape that she is claiming. And they can't just be people who are knowledgeable of it, or even to whom the rapist might have bragged or discussed it afterwards. She must have four eyewitnesses to the rape itself. And yet, we have many Western women who think that Islam is pro-woman. They think it's enlightened. They think it is a religion of freedom. The very word Islam means submission. It is anti-freedom. In every way that matters, I repeat, Islam is anti-Western. Now, why does that matter here? And why does it matter in our discussion today? Because the, the Palestinian organizations such as Fatah, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and the PA, the Palestinian Authority, they're all secular organizations. The PA, for instance, um, governs uh, roughly 40% of the West Bank. Not so Hamas, and Hamas governs since, I think, the 2005 elections. It governs the Gaza Strip. Hamas is Islamic in its core ideology. Its ideology is rooted in Islam. And that's because Hamas was birthed by the, mother, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood, an organization, a terrorist organization, which was welcomed to the White House by Obama, but it is banned by, it is outlawed by the Egyptian government and others. And the Muslim Brotherhood Again, gave rise to Hamas. And they were of the belief that Islam, if it's to be taken seriously, must play a role in every aspect of human existence. Now, this shouldn't be too difficult for Christians uh, to understand. A Christian, I as a Christian believe that any Christian faith that doesn't apply to every aspect of my life isn't really an authentic. Christian faith. It ought to apply to every aspect of my life. And similarly, Muslims believe that. The difference is that Islam is a very dangerous religion. And so, uh, Hamas is of the view that, uh, that Islam should play a role in governance, that it should it, it whole populations must submit to it. And unlike the Fatah and the PLO and the Palestinian Authority, which, as a result of the, uh, the uh, Oslo Accords, recognize the state of Israel's right to existence, Hamas does not recognize the right of Israel, the state of Israel and its right to exist. And that's why you hear this language, river to the sea. Let's be very clear on who Hamas is. You saw in our show opening, people who fall on both sides of this. I was disappointed by Candace Owens, who's saying, if you support either side of this, you know, you're wrong, you're immoral, you're evil in doing that. She's wrong. She's, she's deadly wrong, and she clearly doesn't understand what is taking place in this part of the world. Hamas is of the view that Israel must be annihilated, and they acted on that in the October 7th attacks on Israel. Now, I want to emphasize this. The, the October 7, uh, 7th attacks, there's just the latest chapter in a long and bloody of history of conflict between Muslims and Israel. And indeed, it is a conflict that predates the existence of Islam by some, oh, roughly, 2000 years it was my privilege many years ago to be taught the history of the Middle East by a Palestinian it was a very interesting experience a Palestinian christian no less which 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 made it all the more interesting but I have been spending, I've been very reluctant. In fact, the team here would tell you that I've been very slow as I often am when it comes to these kinds of issues to respond. It's the, um, it is the practice of people in my profession, I would say the overwhelming majority of them, that when something happens to within minutes, get something out. To to um, you know, put out a tweet, to put out an article, to immediately put out a video of yourself, you know, explaining what's going on. Often these are wrong. They are often individuals who are speaking first of all on very limited information, information that often proves later to be to be wrong itself, and offering opinions that just aren't particularly helpful for the simple reason that they're just trying to get clicks. So, you know, last week during our live q and it's unusual for us to do two q- Q&As in, or, in a row like this. Um, you know, I, I said in advance to our team, I don't want to discuss this. I've done two interviews um, with... Uh, um, um, Eric Metaxas in the, uh, the for his podcast in the last couple of weeks and both times I said I don't want to discuss Israel and Hamas And the reason is because I have been going back over my notes. I've been rereading not just simply the headlines, I've been rereading the history of this ancient, Conflict. I've been reminding myself of the Israeli and the Palestinian views of all that is taking place here. So it is my hope today, it is my hope today to help you to understand some of what's going on behind the headlines. I make no pretense of being an expert on all of this. This is in some ways, it feels as though, you know, as an old headmaster of mine used to say, it's like swimming in grits. Uh, in, it's, in, in some ways, it may very well be that there are really no experts, and that is because there's really no solution to this problem. It's deeply complex, it's ancient, it is violent. But for us to understand what's going on here now, you must understand Islam. You must understand what Islam is about, because violence uh, the atrocities we're seeing of violence, rape, plunder, many other atrocities, they are authorized by Allah if it advances the cause of Islam. Now, these things have been part and parcel of war since, I mean, go and read Homer's Iliad. I mean, since ancient times, one of the ways that, that the, uh, you know, the, the, the Greeks inspired their warriors was to tell them, if we take the city, when the city falls you get your first pick of the women. You you get your first pick of the, the treasure, of the loot, of the plunder that awaits you. This was used to motivate them. But Islam has commercialized it and called it good because these things are deemed to be acceptable to Allah, provided that they advance the cause of Islam. Now, to give you some glimpse into this, Some of you might not be familiar with the Rotherham scandal. I encourage you to look it up. But this was a scandal that was eventually uncovered by the times of London. And I was in London some years ago. I'm in London frequently, but I was in London some years ago um, interviewing um, or really just having lunch with a member of the Times who was telling me about the scandal before or just as it was, it was making headlines. And what was this? Well, this was a, um, the, what shall I say, the systemic uh, a corruption, uh, the wholesale rape of British white girls. And I want to emphasize this, British white girls by Muslim men. The Times has called it rape on, quote, an industrial scale. These were girls who were largely at risk, adolescents who were initially seduced, then filmed having sex with Muslim men, often old Muslim men, and they were threatened that if they ever told anyone that they would be killed or some awful thing would be done to them. And so these girls were trafficked, they were moved around the country, Um, members of the police, often often Islamic uh, members of the police, and taxi drivers were involved in assisting with this. And initially, the Times had reported it as uh, these were Asian men who were doing this. And quite rightly, Chinese, Koreans, Sikhs, others said, whoa, hold on there, this isn't just you know, random, uh, excuse me, Asians who are doing these things. These are Muslims, and they're almost exclusively Pakistanis and a few Afghans who are doing these things. At last count, no less than 19,000 British white girls, and I emphasize that for this simple reason, because according to Islam, non-Muslim girls are fair game. They can be raped, they can be trafficked. Many of the girls reported that when they were being raped that often their rapists were quoting from the Quran as these things were going on. At last count, some 19,000 British white girls were raped and I'm sure that number is much higher as more of these sex gangs have been uncovered. The point here is the idea that Islam is in some way compatible with Western ideals is complete nonsense. The atrocities that you've been seeing coming out of the Middle East, the beheading of babies, the raping uh, of girls, the killing of innocents, the um, murder of old people, young people, videoing it. I mean, you have the... uh, you know, the woman here uh, is all over social media who was, who was telling herself, a Palestinian, telling the people who are doing the killing, hey, stop videoing it like this. Video it like this. Video it in landscape mode so that we can better see what it is that you're doing. This is Islam. Now, I am aware of the fact that many of you will say, hey, I have Muslim friends, I, I do too, um, who aren't like that. They, they hold the same values as I do. Well, they're not really particularly good Muslims. Those are individuals who have chosen quite li- uh, wisely to think of themselves as Muslims in the cultural sense, as a kind of inheritance their parents were muslim maybe their grandparents and so on were muslim but they're not obedient to the quran they're not obedient to the hadith and they are not modeling their lives after muhammad so the so-called as they're supposed to do so the so-called radicals when we refer to radical islam that actually is a misnomer because these are really just orthodox muslims who are obedient to the Quran, who are obedient to the Hadith, who are, as they are called to do, modeling their lives after Muhammad. So Hamas is, at core, their ideology is, as I say, rooted in Islam. And it is, it is a major factor, the driving factor, in what you're seeing Hamas do in the Middle East. And no doubt, part of what is going on here is as, is, as was the case with Black September and the 1972 Munich Olympics, an effort to garner worldwide attention for the Palestinian people. And I want to be clear on this point. Anyone who speaks anything um, that, that sounds like it is in defense of the Palestinian people might be denounced. Well, so I want to say this there are many innocent. Palestinians. The Palestinian people are being used here. They uh, occupy both the Gaza Strip and they occupy the West Bank. As yet, unrest in the West Bank has not reached the level of what we're seeing, in at least at this time, in, in the Gaza Strip. But both of these areas are, um, are dominated by Palestinians. But part of the reason for that is because the Gaza Strip is governed by Hamas, Gazas, um, uh, uh, the West Bank is not, and those are two very different groups, one of them largely secular, uh, the other one exclusively Islamic in its ideology. And these, the individuals who are really pulling the streaks, uh, strings here are, are elsewhere. <laughs> they're not there. They're sipping Mai Tais on, on some Mediterranean beach or they're in, uh, in Qatar or perhaps in Iran. They're not suffering uh, the consequences of what is taking in Palestine. And these individuals, these Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip, Gaza Strip is an area, it's about the size of... Well, a major U.S. city, it's not particularly big. It's about 25 miles long and about seven miles wide. Their population, half the population is under the age of 16. Popula- um, uh, unemployment is about 50%, and among, the, among youth, it runs at about 70%. There are two, uh, a little over 2 million people who are crowded into this Very small area, and no one wants them. Obviously, the Israelis don't want them, the Egyptians, and they're bordered. They're bordered by Egypt on two sides, the Mediterranean on one side, and Egypt to the south. The Egyptians don't want them. They are not opening their borders to them. And that is because, for almost for the same reason, that the Israelis don't want them. And that is because of the potential terrorists among them. They played a role in the the Arab Spring um, and... um, which was a kind of a a freedom movement, a democratic movement that swept Islamic countries. But they moved into that crowd, and they were seeking to overthrow the Egyptian government. So the Egyptians don't want them either. So they have been working with the Israelis to block them into this area. So those Palestinians who are there, they can't leave, they can't go anywhere. And uh, the result is that with the blockade that the Israelis are running on the Gaza Strip, this, this is an economic crater. This is, a, this, is an, this is an area that is devastated in just about every way that you can imagine. From the Israeli point of view, understandably, they don't see that they really have any options here because to loosen restrictions, to loosen the blockade, on Gaza Strip means undoubtedly weapons pouring into the Gaza Strip. It means rockets, it means uh, more terrorists, it means more attacks on the people of Israel. So this is where we find ourselves. In the meantime, you have um, the Biden administration that seems to be working both sides of this tweeting their strong support of Israel, and now Biden says he's going to go to Palestine. You know, he didn't bother going to East Palestine. He didn't bother going to Ohio when um, there was a disaster that took place there. But now he's flying to this part of the world. But we know that the weapons that are being used, in many cases that are being used by Hamas, those are weapons that have come out of Afghanistan. And how did they get there? Because the Taliban is... um, is in cahoots with Hamas. They celebrate each other's uh, uh, terrorist attacks and victories. So if you notice, if you're watching these videos carefully, you will see these terrorists are carrying ARs. They are carrying um, uh, uh, weapons that are... They're not carrying AK-47s. They are carrying American-made weapons. So what I want to do now is... um, is open this up for questions from you. Again, I don't pretend to know all the answers to everything that is going on here, but I do hope to give you some understanding of what is taking place in this part of the world.
0: Uh, We have a question from Gerald Brown, uh, and he says, do you think this is a catalyst for World War War III?
1: So, Gerald, I... uh, I don't know the answer to that. I know that many people think, I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. Um, um, is there an effort to start World War III? No, no, I don't think anybody wants that or sees any benefit in that. That said, who would have thought the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which most people in the West couldn't have told you who he was or had ever heard of him, in Sarajevo in August of 1914 would lead to World War I? It did. And, uh, oh, I don't know, 15 million people later, that war finally saw some conclusion. What we do know is that the Middle East, the Middle East is a tinderbox. It could go up at any moment. And as various world powers take sides in this, it runs the risk of escalating quite rapidly.
0: Um, We have another question here. do you believe that Biden will begin to bring refugees over here?
1: Uh, yeah, I think he will. Um, again, nobody, the Palestinians, the, nobody wants the Palestinians. And you have to understand that when we're talking about the Palestinians, when we're talking about what's going on here, do not see, do not see Islam as monolithic and don't even see the Palestinians as monolithic. There are various factions at work here. 50% of Palestinians polled in Gaza and in the West Bank say they support Hamas. Now, that's a high number. That said, that means 50% don't. And there are those who see that what has taken place with the ascendancy of Hamas, which came to power in, I think, 2005 when they defeated The Palestinian Authority, which is an offshoot of, you know, you have Fatah, which is, you know, goes back to the 1950s, then, uh, which was founded by Yasser Arafat and others, and then the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which is a kind of subsidiary to Fatah, also founded by Yasser Arafat, and then a subsidiary to that, the Palestinian Authority, which was founded in oh, I guess probably 1994, as a result of the Oslo Accords. The Oslo Accords were those meetings, secret meetings in Oslo initially, between the Palestinian leadership, which was led by the um, by Fatah and the PLO, and um, Israel. And the idea was this that that. In exchange for Israel withdrawing um, to its pre-1967 boundaries, you know, the 1967 war, the Israelis took the Golan Heights, they took the Sinai Peninsula, they took the West Bank, and they took the Gaza Strip. But the Israelis ended up with a lot of Palestinians in their house that they didn't want there because they were they, they had been governed by the Jordanians. Now they were governed by the Israelis. The Israelis didn't want them anymore. And so the idea was you'll withdraw, you'll withdraw to your pre-1967 boundaries, and in exchange for that, we will recognize the state of Israel. We will recognize Israel's right to exist. Well, that... That happened, and the PA was established as a kind of intermediary body, a transitory body, that would oversee this transition. Well... The PA was defeated, the Palestinian Authority was defeated in an election in 2005 by Hamas. Now, according to the Israelis, they stole the election. They did it by force. They did it like Democrats, (laughs) is what they they did, from the Israeli point of view and no doubt from the, the PA's point of view. Regardless, Hamas came to power in 2005 in Gaza and life has been hell. for. If life was rough for the Palestinians in Gaza before Hamas came to power, it has definitely been hell ever since. And that is because since that time, they've launched three wars against the Israelis. And it is the ordinary people who are suffering here. There are those Palestinians who are saying, we want peace. We just want to live in peace. We, we have no desire for war. Well, from Hamas's point of view, it's too bad. And by the way, Hamas is to blame, not Israel, Hamas is to blame for the suffering of Palestinian innocence. They brought this upon their fellow Palestinians and they wanted to. Now, it could very well be that they did it in an effort to try to turn public opinion against the Israelis, in trying to goad the Israelis into um, uh, committing atrocities that could be used to turn public opinion against the Israelis. But you have to bear in mind, the Israelis are very aware of the fact that they, uh, they are uh, um, an island in an Arab world. I mean, let's just take, let, let me go back to the Munich Olympics again, 1972 Munich Olympics in, in which, in, and I, by the way, I encourage you to watch the film one day in September, um, the aforementioned Oscar-winning film when that meant something narrated by Michael Douglas. It's terrific. I watched it when it came out in the 90s, and I re-watched it again a couple of days ago. And, um, you know, that, that, that terrorist attack, as I say, was an effort to garner world opinion. Um, um, in order to change it and to draw attention to the Palestinians. But do you know how many Arab countries condemned Black September for that terrorist attack? One, King Hussein of Jordan. That was it. You would have thought that maybe other Arab countries would say, hey, we're not in favor of these kind of tactics. No, they didn't. They didn't say that. Black September uh, was deemed heroic by much of the um, Arab world, and this may very well be the case again with this next question
0: uh you got a question here from human being um larry why don't you mention zionism i believe this is a big part of all of this that's that's what he said
1: um well there's not you make it sound very conspiratorial like i'm um you know i'm not mentioning i mean we're just getting started here um it's not any conspiracy on my part not to mention it i mean zionism certainly plays a role here but let me say this some of this nonsense that you're hearing from these idiots who are saying before 1948 i mean the israel is israelis you know had no place in the middle east well they didn't formally have a place this has been deemed to be israeli land since oh about the time of abraham and abraham existed about 1950 bc that's roughly where we we date um God's call upon Abram's life, who later became Abraham So, um, Zionism. Um, you know, you're, you're. I, I guess you're talking about the um, the Balfour Declaration, which came out uh, the 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 foreign minister for the British government, who stated in the Balfour Declaration in I think it was 1916, uh, 1917, and which. It was stated that, that the British government, post-World War I, with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, you know, this, this area was dominated by the Ottomans for several hundred years, that with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, who's going to occupy this territory? Well, the British government in the Balfour Declaration said they would support the establishment of an Israeli state. And that happened in, uh, in 1948. And Palestinians and much of the Arab world, they have been trying to turn the clock back on that ever since. But don't buy into this nonsense that says that, you know, uh, that sort of de- depicts the Israelis as interlopers into this territory and pushing people out to claim land that wasn't theirs. No, it, historically, it has been theirs for roughly 3,000 years. Next question.
0: Um, Ali... Adonai um, says, do you think Israel had foreknowledge of the attack?
1: Well, um, what what, what was it? Something Adonai? Um, Ali Ali Adonai? It sounds like Muslim and Jewish all right there, but uh, it's, an, it's an odd mix right there. Uh, far be it from me to take the name of God as my own. But anyway, no, I don't. I don't think the Israelis knew this was coming. That's uh, it's like saying, you know, did, uh, you know, did Roosevelt know about the uh, Pearl Harbor before it took place? No, he didn't know that. And, and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and the Israeli government did not know this was coming. Next.
0: Uh, we have a question here that uh, um, Mr. Green Wizard asks. Do you think... <laughs> <laughs> do you think... Uh, he says, hi, Larry. Would turning Gaza into a car park end this?
1: Um, he, 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 w- would turning it into a car park end it?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that would be an atrocity. Because just as I've said that... um. The Jews have occupied this territory for roughly 3,000 years. They didn't occupy it solely. Palestinians have an ancient history here as well, and there are many innocents in the Gaza Strip as well as in the West Bank. This is why I say that this problem, this problem, I don't think there is a solution to this problem because the Palestinians aren't without any claim whatsoever. They do have, they do have a, a, some legitimate claim. The Jews have a legitimate claim, and this is the problem. This is how the British government—if you look at the uh, the partition, the map the, uh, for a partition following the proposed partition—what that looks like is just a complete mess. And then where it is now, I mean, look at the state of Israel. Look at the state of Israel. I mean, they have within their borders essentially Palestinians in two separate places. You have the Gaza Strip, and you have um, the West Bank, and it's it would be like if you can imagine the state of you know the United States. It would be like let's say the southeast is you know Palestinian, and then you have you know in some some other central part of the country, say in the Midwest, another Palestinian state. I mean, it's geographically it's extremely difficult, and then there's there's the claims on Jerusalem. Which both religions, not to mention Christianity, so you have three, all see Jerusalem as their holy site, as their holy city. All want access to it. So how do you solve that? Well, I wouldn't recommend that the Israelis just simply wipe out you know, the Gaza Strip altogether. I mean, that would be an atrocity. As I say, there are many, many uh, Palestinians who, they're not terrorists and just want to live in peace. Unfortunately, living among them are many Muslim, and I want to emphasize that, Muslim terrorists who do want war, who do want to commit atrocities. Next question.
0: Um, do you think it's surprising the amount of Hollywood elites, um, Democrats, and other people uh, who have always been silent are now coming out against Hamas? Is that surprising to you coming
1: out against Hamas? Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't surprise me because um i think hollywood types let's just take a guy like travis kelsey i don't know if travis kelsey has said anything on this issue or not travis kelsey is an idiot but he is a great self-promoter and so travis kelsey uh it, right now because he's writing the he what's her name taylor swift he's writing the you know, the Taylor Swift wave, I couldn't name a single Taylor Swift song, goes to show you how plugged in I am to pop culture music. He's riding that wave, and so who comes to him and says, Hey, could you push our product? Pfizer. They want to use him to push Pfizer. And he's pushing any number of other products as well. Those Those individuals, you might call them influencers, Hollywood types, they're constantly being used by others to push some kind of agenda and to speak out on on these kind of issues. Tua Tonga-Vailoa, I'm an Alabama fan. Tua is now the quarterback for the Miami Dolphins. After their game the other day against the Carolina Panthers, during his press conference, he took a break from discussing football to discuss what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, That's his right. He's allowed to do that. Whether or not it's wise or he should be or he has any authority to speak on it, I don't know. But it doesn't surprise me because Hollywood types are always ready to speak to these kinds of issues. And by the way, I was telling you in the opening to this that Hollywood is gaslighting you. Well, I started recently watching... A, um, a In many ways, an excellent series called Slow Horses. I may have mentioned it before. I can't remember. But Slow Horses is a uh, British spy thriller. It's set in modern times. It stars Gary Oldman, who is a terrific actor. The language is rough. I want to um, warn you that the language is rough. But they are trying, to, in season one, they're trying to track down these head-chopping terrorists. They are beheading people on camera and uploading it on YouTube. Now, who's doing that? Who has done that? ISIS, Muslims. They're the ones who are doing that. But in a devious sleight of hand, that's not the way this story is being told. Guess who is doing the head shopping? It is white nationalists, basically British Brexiters, uh, the, the British equivalent of MAGA people. Um, who are beheading Muslims and uploading it onto YouTube. Now I want you to tell me instances where that's happening. What white nationalist group is out there beheading Muslims? I'm not aware of this. what what is it is it? The Amish who flew those planes into the sides of buildings? Was it the the Presbyterians who are committing these these horrible atrocities in the Middle East? No, it is Muslims. But that is not a narrative that you are going to get out of Hollywood. They're just simply not going to tell the truth as it relates to that. I will say there is one excellent um, spy thriller. It's French. It's called The Bureau. Probably the best series I've ever watched that does tell the truth where it relates to this. But anyway, next question.
0: Um, Sewing so Stacia wants to know, isn't the hatred of the Jews basically because the haters hate the God of the Jews and Christians?
1: Is anti-Semitism caused by a hatred for God? Well, at bottom, certainly um, hate in general has its root in godlessness, but I should I, I will be very controversial when I say this. The Jewish people, Muslims, and that is to say Orthodox Jews, Muslims and Christians do not worship the same God. They do not. And this was a point that was, first of all, they say very contradictory things about God. So, um, you know, Islam is a backward, illiterate religion. Their, their God is a, is a Bronze Age pagan deity, has nothing in common with the God of the Bible. Some of you will say, but don't Jews and Christians worship the same God? Well, of course not, because as Jesus himself said, um, he said to the Jews that Moses testified about me, but you don't believe in me. You reject me. Meaning in his his debates with the Pharisees, they say, well, we believe in Moses. He'd say, no, you don't. Because if you did, you would believe in me. You would believe in me, but you have rejected me. And John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So if, if your belief in God only takes you up to, but does not include the person of Jesus Christ, you're worshiping something other than the god of the bible you're worshiping a god of your own creation so christians and jews do not worship that is to say again there are many jews who have become christians but if you're an orthodox jew you are worshiping a different deity because you reject the person of jesus christ And if you reject jesus christ you reject god at least as we know it and understand it so no they're not they're not the same next
0: uh be borrowed wants to know is B.B. part of
1: WEF? I, mm, he may uh, he may has attended it. Um, they have many, I mean, Trump has attended it, but he's he's hardly a Weffer. He's not a globalist. Um, is Netanyahu a um, a big globalist? I should think certainly not. He's much more ideologically in line with someone like um, a Donald Trump. So no, I don't I don't think he's a big Weffer. I don't see any connection between the WEF and his policy.
0: Uh, Joanne Bell wants to know if, if they, meaning Israel, went and stole the land from the Palestinians knowing they are a hornet's nest, why isn't Israel solely to blame for this theft? They aren't innocent, right? They stole their land.
1: Well, no, they didn't steal their land. As I've said, they've been on this land for more than 3,000 years. That said, the Palestinians are not without some claim, meaning they have both, for eons, um, occupied this land. And that's why the problem is what it is, because it's not like we—you can't go back, as some people have done— on television and on social media and saying that, you know, that Israel's claim on the land only dates to 1948. That's, that's historical stupidity. It, it dates as, it, since time immemorial. But the Palestinians have also been on this. Like, listen, this conflict goes back, biblically speaking, to Abraham. It goes back to Ishmael. It goes back to Isaac. It goes, it goes back to, to that uh, uh, conflict which began right there. And by the way, while I think that Jimmy Carter is, was a terrible president, and I don't agree with Jimmy Carter on much, he wrote a book back in, I think, the 19, maybe the 1980s uh, that is called The Blood of Abraham, The Blood of Abraham, and that is a very good book that goes a long way towards explaining this particular conflict. Again, this conflict goes back roughly 3,000 years. So, did they steal the land? No, they didn't steal the land.
0: Hey, I got a question here um, from OCBB. Oh, OCB Bama. Okay, good to see. Roll Tide. Um, they wanna know what about the leader of Hamas's son who turned his faith to the Lord? Are they targeting Christians as well as that man?
1: I don't really know anything about that particular instance, but I can tell you this. Yes, they target Christians. They target Christians um, um, in an extraordinary way. Listen to this. This is from an um, article written by John L. Allen in Spectator magazine, the British Spectator magazine. This is what he says, according to the International Society for Human Rights, a secular observatory based in Frankfurt, Germany, 80% of all acts of religious discrimination in the world today are directed at Christians. Statistically speaking, that makes Christians by far the most persecuted religious body on the planet. According to Pew Forum, between 2006 and 2010, Christians face some form of discrimination, either de jure or de facto, in a staggering total of 139 countries. That number would be much higher now, which is almost three-quarters of all the countries on earth. According to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Massachusetts, an average of 100,000 Christians have been killed in what the center calls, quote, a situation of witness each year for the past decade. That works out to 11 Christians killed somewhere in the world every hour, seven days a week, 365 days a year for reasons related to their faith. In effect... The world is witnessing the rise of an entire new generation of Christian martyrs. The carnage is occurring on such a vast scale that it, is, that it represents not only the most dramatic Christian story of our time, but arguably the premier human rights challenge of this era as well. Almost all of this persecution is taking place at the hands of Muslims. I have seen it. I have seen it in Africa I have seen it in Europe. I have seen it all over the world. It is real, and it largely goes unreported. In fact, the name of this article, if you would like to find it, is it's called The Great Unreported Catastrophe of Our Time. It is a new holocaust of our time. So are they targeting Christians? Yes. Here's an interesting story. Some years ago, I was invited to hear, and I have to be very careful in the way that I tell this story because this man is in danger But I was invited to hear a Muslim tell his story of his conversion uh, to the Christian faith and um, of what that looked like for him, his personal journey. He was the son of a high ranking um, Jordanian. Um, I think I said yesterday in an interview, Syrian, but he was the uh, son of a high ranking Jordanian government official. And he had, through um, an online Bible study, he had become a Christian. Well, fearfully, because he knew what this meant, because according to Islam, his father is obligated to kill him. So fearfully, he told his father of his conversion, and this eventually led to him having to flee not just the house, but flee the country. And he was telling the story of his father shooting at him as he was leaving uh, running out of the house and his father hitting the doorpost as he was going, he he tends to think his father wasn't trying to hit him, but wanted to have deniability when they said, "Well, why didn't you kill him?" He'd we say, "Well, I did. I, you know, I tried. I shot at him, but I, but I missed him." But as he ran from the house and he fled the country, and he lives under a kind of fatwa, that is to say, under a death sentence, and so he has been in hiding in the United States. And I was invited to this secret location, this secret meeting to hear his story. This is Islam. And one of the things that he said that I thought was very interesting is, you know, why are so many Muslims, why are they not living according to um, the, uh, the Quran, the Hadith and modeling their lives after Muhammad? And he said, Muslims are, many Muslims are fearful of the Quran because they know it's violent, they know what it says, and they don't want to feel like bad Muslims. So, they, so they, 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 they stay away from it. But you see, what is happening is that now you have, say, the Iranians and the Saudis who are sending what I'll call missionaries, imams, radical clerics, into these countries Uh, North African countries in particular, where there's a high Muslim population, but a population that is living by and large in peace with the indigenous populations. Well, those clerics come in, and what you see happening in those countries is that over time, those Muslim women who are associating, let's say, with um, the secular or Christian populations of those host African countries, those women, those Muslim women who are dressing just like everybody else? Over time, they they start to disappear almost quite literally, where they are, um, you know, soon wearing burqas. They're disassociating from non-Muslims, um, and they begin to observe very strictly Islamic dictates. And shortly thereafter, there are terrorist attacks. This is what has happened throughout um, North Africa, and it's what's going on in. Uh, in Europe now, because Europe is a, is, is a host continent for um, an alien ideology and alien people in allowing Muslims across their borders. And is why I'm of the view, I'll say something else here, very controversial, Muslims should not be allowed into the United States. And that's for the simple reason that any true Muslim cannot say, uh, with honesty, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. No Muslim believes that. They don't believe that. They believe that, uh, they don't believe in the pursuit of happiness. They pers- believe in the, um, the submission of people to the will of Allah. They do not believe in freedom. They do not believe in equality. In any meaningful way, and in fact, Islam is of the view that the that there must be war. Muhammad said, "Terrorize them until such time as they should submit." And from a Muslim point of view, unbelievers, uh, that is to say, heathens, or what I want to say, unbelievers. The um, anyway, it's gone out of my head. um, The word, but. Unbelievers must uh, convert, pay a tax, or die. Those are the three options. That's it. Now, again, I do realize some of you will say, I have Muslim friends who don't behave like that. Thank God. Thank God they don't. That means they're not taking seriously their Muslim worldview, but they are always a threat to take it very seriously. So, again, I'm not saying that every every Muslim is a terrorist or a would-be terrorist. I am telling you that there's a disproportionate number of terrorists among Muslims. And that is because it's perfectly consistent with Islamic ideology, hence Hamas. That's who Hamas is. They're not the same as the PLO. They're not the same as Fatah. They're not the same as the Palestinian authorities who are not particularly Islamic in their outlook. Hamas is. They absolutely are, just like the Muslim Brotherhood that founded them. Next question. I think we have 7 minutes roughly.
0: Well, you may have answered this question just then, but I wanted to it was next in line. John Yack says I have both Jewish and Muslim friends. I have never heard any of them say anything like that or threaten anybody. That stuff Hamas did is not Allah Akbar. None of my Muslim friends would ever say that.
1: Yeah, well that's because they're they're they've been westernized. Listen, I've known many Muslims but they are, um, and whose company I have enjoyed and discussions I've, I've enjoyed with them many times, and it's because they are, they, they're really not Muslims. They couldn't really, they could no more tell you the, the content of their holy literature than, than a Methodist could tell you the content of the Bible. I'm just having a little bit of fun, but there's some truth in this. They're not familiar with their own holy rituals, with their own holy writings. They are not, but... Please understand that I'm speaking here with some measure of authority. I've, I've engaged with Muslims in Africa. I'm talking radicals. I'm talking about people who believe in jihad. I'm talking about people who murder, who slaughter. I've seen the stacks of bodies. I've seen the mutilated women. I've seen the mutilated, murdered men. You are not hearing about this in the West. This is going on on an enormous scale. I've debated the radical Muslims who gather every Sunday afternoon at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. This is not for the faint of heart. This is not for the faint of heart. They will threaten to kill you, and they mean it because they believe that's what Allah would call them to do. They will threaten to rape, as they have an associate of mine uh, who, in the middle of a debate at Hyde Park, you get up on um, these um, platforms and... Hundreds will gather around as you're debating with someone, you know, say I as a Christian, uh, my, my, my dear friend Jay Smith, who's done this a lot more than me and who, um, who got me to do it with him at Hyde Park on several occasions, where you're standing on a platform, you're standing on a ladder with a platform, taking on a Muslim, and you're arguing about, you know, the person of Jesus Christ, or you're arguing about the violence of the Bible versus that of Islam. You're debating some point of theology, and hundreds of Muslims will gather around. This woman, while she's debating, a Muslim whispers in her ear, We will rape you. We will rape you. And he meant it. This is Islam. This is Islam taken seriously. This is not just cultural, westernized Islam. This is the face of authentic. Islam, and that is because think about it like this, ladies and gentlemen. Again, this is this is I, I, I attribute this to Jay Smith. Um, again, a very dear friend of mine, a guy who you know lived in London 25 years, taking on the radicals there. But he has a very simple little um, method that he used, and he calls it the Book of the Man. You have you have um, in Islam, you have the book Islam, and you have the man Muhammad. In Christianity, you have the book, the Bible. You have the man, Jesus. Compare the two of them. They aren't the same. Muhammad fought over 80 battles. He executed, cut the throats of 800 Jews in a single day. He raped, plundered, slaughtered all over the Middle East. Jesus did none of that. You see? Do you see the difference? Christianity assumes that men are wicked by nature and that they need the forgiveness and grace of God. It calls upon men to repent. Islam says all those evil things are okay if they're advancing the cause of Allah. This is Islam, this is Hamas. Next question. Okay, well, it sounds like we've run out of, we've run out of questions. Something that I want to say here as we, as we close There are a lot of... This is a highly complex issue. Don't accept simple answers to this because there are no simple answers here. Um, And I also want to say this to you. Not just related to this issue, but just just related to what's happening in the news in general, to the posse. I want to say this to the posse, the people who follow this podcast. um, uh, who are, you know, make comments and who are very faithful followers of the Ideas Have Consequences podcast, I want to urge you, all of you, to enjoy the good things of life from time to time. Ecclesiastes two twenty four and 25 says this, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have any enjoyment? Now, why do I say that? That maybe seems like an odd thing to say in the midst of a podcast. that's about something so horrible as the um, the war that's taking place between Israel and Hamas and the atrocities that we're speaking of. The news is designed to keep you in a constant state of anxiety. It's, It's designed to keep you constantly under pressure to keep you constantly afraid. I was seeing this new Pfizer commercial or something similar that shows, uh, you know, virus is a wolf that's threatening people. And unless you have their vaccine, you're not safe. Ladies and gentlemen, take a break from this kind of stuff. God has given you good things. He has given all that you have comes from God. And I don't, I, maybe it's this morning, I'm sitting on my dock and I'm looking at a, at a beautiful sunrise. I'm looking at just, just the, the beautiful colors. Even though I'm colorblind, to me, the world looks like an explosion of color. I, I am enjoying the beauty of it and the still waters. I enjoy, you know, a cup of coffee um, with my wife. I enjoy uh, my, my family coming over and friends coming over for the weekend to watch football and to eat pizza. And I'm enjoying a, a good book. It is okay. Do not feel guilty to enjoy the good things that God has given to you. He's given them to you for a reason. They are meant to be a blessing to you. Allow them to be a blessing to you. Allow them to be a blessing to other people as well. Share what you have, but just know that you can't live in a constant state of anxiety. When this is over, I'll go and do something else for a little while. It's been great to have you with us on the Ideas Have Consequences podcast.